Amen. Thank you, David, for leading in our time of family worship, and we're praying for the kids as they go downstairs and learn from God's Word as well. I'm always amazed at how God just works things together, and we see, I see common themes that come out each week as he reminds us of who he is and what he has done uh, for us in Christ. Uh, We're going to be continuing in our series of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, as uh, God's Word continues to increase and go forth. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12, going from verse 1 to verse 19. But I want to begin with a story. It's a story that uh, is from my own life. Uh, When I was in college during the summer, I started to... uh, work at Youth for Christ in St. Catharines. There's an opportunity to work with a friend that I had to go there for the summer uh, to work with the youth. Uh, But with Youth for Christ, uh, you don't get paid by them. You have people who sponsor you, who give money to uh, go and do what you you do. Uh, So you need people to donate money, essentially. Uh, When I first had applied for it, I thought that I had to raise around like 2,500 and then the rest of the money they would kind of cover through other sponsorships and such. But when I got there, uh, I came to realize that it wasn't in fact 2500 it was in fact $7,000 that I had to raise. And I remember when I first heard that, my heart kind of dropped and I was like, oh, is, is it, do I really want to do this? Am I able to go and do this for the summer and in like four months raise that much money? It was a hopeless feeling that I had, a hopeless situation that I had. The reality is, is we've all faced hopelessness in our life before. There's been situations in our life that we have faced where we feel hopeless. We don't really see a good outcome coming from moving forward in this direction. There's a lot of hopelessness in our world. We see it through circumstances and situations Um, maybe it's uh, friends and family that you have in your life who don't know Christ, and it really seems like there's no way that they would ever turn to Christ at all. They denounce Christ, they're atheists, or they just don't believe. These situations can feel hopeless. Maybe it's the, the death of a family member or a friend. Right? Death is hard, and it can feel so hopeless at times. How will we ever feel better? and with hope. But what's your response when circumstances of might and power seem to be against you, seem to not be at all in your favor, when you feel this hopelessness? What or who do you turn to? The growing church has faced persecution. We've seen this as we've walked through Acts together. Stephen was martyred. Uh, The apostles were arrested, yet the word of God continued to increase. But persecution continues to come, and not just from the Jews, but we're going to read that it now comes from King Herod. The power against the church is growing. And so how does the church respond? Well, let's jump into Acts 12 together, and we will see the amazing might of God as he works powerfully through his church. Acts 12, starting in verse 1, says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done uh, by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers and sisters. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Mighty God, may we stand in awe of you, your holiness, your majesty, your power as we hear from your word this morning. God, your word is truth, and may we see it rightly as that. God, grant us a hunger and submission to your truth. Guide us in wisdom and understanding, God, that you, that we would know the meaning of this text and how it points us to Christ. And Lord, increase our love for you and for one another. Lord, help us apply this passage to our lives today that we would be changed by your word through the working of your Holy Spirit, that we would be obedient followers of Christ. And Lord, help me to preach your word with boldness and gentleness, that you will be center and that, God, you will be glorified as you continue to save and sanctify your people. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So as we begin in chapter 12, we're introduced to this man named King Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I, and uh, he seems to be tied to Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, the one who arrested John the Baptist and had him beheaded. Uh, we think that, 
You might be reminded of this name Herod when you think of Jesus' birth and he had all the baby boys killed in Bethlehem trying to get rid of Jesus. But that was in fact Herod's grandfather. This Herod is a Roman-appointed ruler over Judea. He is also the king of the Jews. And he had power, so we can see. He sought to have favor with the Jews. He sought to have their, them liking him, essentially, so that it would be more peaceable as he ruled the city, right? It works well when you're ruling if the people that you're ruling over like you. And so he began to persecute the church. We see that he had James. This is James, one of Jesus' disciples, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' apostles, one of the leaders within this church. And he had James killed by the sword. James was martyred as well. Herod clearly was a, a strong leader, and so he aimed to take out the leaders of the church and it pleased the Jews. Right? He wanted to take out the heads of the church. That was his strategy. The only problem is, is that James, and we find out later that Peter gets arrested, they aren't the heads of the church. Right? Christ is the head of the church. And the Jews tried to kill Jesus already. That didn't work out so well. Right? Hence this whole church movement. Hence why this church is growing. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again. Amen. Right? And so Herod tries to attack the church and tries to take out these leaders. And so he uses James and Peter as the next best option because he can't get to Jesus. So to please the Jews, Herod kills uh, James and he arrests Peter. And the church has been hit now with some pretty heavy persecution. Stephen's been martyred. The apostles were arrested. They were freed. Now James is killed. Now Peter is arrested. And this can often lead to hopelessness, but this suffering was expected. This didn't come out of a surprise of any kind. Jesus told his followers that this was to happen. In Luke 9, verse 23 to 25, it says, and he, Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his soul? This was expected suffering. This was expected persecution. Jesus tells his followers to follow him, and what happened to Jesus? There was persecution. There was death. But we praise God that that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus rose again. And so we know that God is in control over these things. The disciples knew that God was in control over these things. In Hebrews 11, verses 34 and 37, it says, Some escaped the edge of the sword, as he's talking about faithful men and women who were living for Christ and proclaiming the gospel. So in verse 34, he said, Some escaped the edge of the sword. But in verse 37, he said, And some died by the sword. Two very dis different circumstances. But we see with our mighty and awesome God is because of their faith and desire to point to Christ, God is glorified in both of those circumstances, is he not? God keeps his promises. 
that we would rise to something better, that we will be made perfect, that we will be with him in glory forever, that he can and will use all things for our good and for his glorious name. And so in the death of James and in the arresting of Peter, God will still be glorified. Did not Jesus' followers question him when he said that he was going to die? Right? Peter rebuked Jesus when he said this. Yet God brought about the most glorious redemption through Jesus' death. So Jesus calls all his followers to truly follow him, deny themselves, and take up their cross. And that's what we see both James and Peter do. We continue to read in verse 3 that this was during the days of unleavened bread. A little detail that we might kind of just walk past very quickly, but there are some important things here, some significant reasons that Luke added this detail. See, the days of unleavened bread were the seven days following the Passover. And this Passover time was a holy time. So we see, as we've read, that Peter's execution was postponed because this was a holy time. And if Herod had executed Peter, the Jews wouldn't be very happy. So he waited. But it hit something a little deeper even. See, the Passover was a time that the people remembered God's deliverance out of Egypt, out of slavery. He brought them into freedom by his powerful might through the ten plagues that he brought on Egypt. Right? The people were to remember what God had done for them before. They had just spent this whole time remembering this. You can read about it in Exodus 12, how God establishes this time of the Passover as he calls them to uh, kill a lamb without blemish and to paint the blood on the doorpost so that when God comes through, he will not kill the firstborn, but he will pass over them. And they had unleavened bread because they had to then leave Egypt with haste. They couldn't wait for the bread to rise. They had to go. They were leaving. They were escaping because God was delivering them and freeing them. This is a time for the Israelites to remember who God is. And so they were just remembering all of this And now James is killed, and Peter's arrested. But God has just given them a reminder that he's not a God who is stopped by man's limited might. A meal that's reflecting upon God's exodus out of Egypt, but points to an even greater exodus. The exodus that comes through the true Passover lamb, who is Jesus Christ. The lamb who was without blemish, who was without sin, yet died on the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins for all who would believe in his name. This is the great exodus that we look back on and remember. Jesus has freed us from sin and delivered us from death. Where there was once sin, God sees the blood of Jesus. And so do we, as a church, live as a people already saved by this almighty, all-powerful God? When hopelessness comes in, when things happen, do we turn and look and say, our God has already delivered us. We are free. We are a free people, free from sin and free from death. Hopeless circumstances can often blind us from seeing the reality of who God is 
and what he has already done, but we have already won in Christ. Death is defeated. Our biggest problem has been dealt with. Anything that we face here on out, it's nothing in comparison to what Christ has done for us. We do not need to be a people of fear of this world. And so in James's death and Peter's arrest, Herod uses his might and power to the best of his ability. He uses his power to seek to accomplish his own will. But his power is limited. And we will see once again that nothing will stop our mighty God from accomplishing his will. And so Herod will appoint four squads of soldiers to keep Peter in jail, to watch over him in these night shifts. He's sleeping between two soldiers. He's chained up, and there's sentries at the door guarding the gate. It may seem impossible, and it may be hard for us to fully understand, so I want to paint this picture a little more clearly in case we don't feel the weight of what the church was probably feeling, this hopelessness that they were probably feeling. To put it in a better, more clear reality for us, this is like if I got killed and Pastor Nate and Pastor Chris got arrested. How would you react as a church if that happened? This may seem like something that's far off, that's way in the past, but this happens in our world now. This happens in other countries. Christians are getting arrested and killed. And the groundwork for arresting Christians, even here in Canada, has, has been laid and has happened, as Pastor Nate talked about before in Quebec. But even with things like Bill C-4, the groundwork has been laid that if we speak the truth of God's word against sexuality and identity and calling it sinful and calling people to deny themselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus, there is grounds for us to get arrested. This isn't far off. But in this hopeless situation, what do we read? In verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Church, I pray that that would be our response as well in situations like this, that we'd be a people of prayer, that we'd be a people who turn first and foremost to our mighty God. The focus on prayer shows that the church knew their own limited might. They recognized the reliance that they needed on God to accomplish what only he can. The increase of his word would go forth with God's hand upon it. Nothing that they accomplished would be worth it if God was not with them. So they turned to him in prayer. They turned to him in crying out that God would move, that God would work in his mighty ways, knowing that he has done it before and he will do it again. They gather together, they share with one another what's happened, and together they pray, calling upon God to come through in his promises. And they prayed earnestly. Earnest prayer for him was made. And I don't want us to jump over that word too quickly. This word used earnestly, or maybe in other translations, fervently or without ceasing, they prayed. It's this Greek word that points to this idea of stretching something wholly or fully out to its full extent, to its maximum potential. Without any slack, it's fully extended to its necessary outcome. I think of something like a rubber band, right? If you wanted this thing to fly, 
you'd have to give it some good tension, right? If I only pull it here, it's not going anywhere. If I pull it to its full power, its full extent, it's going to fly. It's going to soar. That's what this word means. That's this kind of prayer that this church is praying. I know some of you were a little worried that I was going to actually send a, don't worry, don't worry. (laughs) I thought about it, but I decided against it. Right, but this is the type of prayer the church is praying. Earnest prayer. Pulled out to its full potential, its full extent. Are we a people of prayer like this? Or do we get lazy? You know, I prayed, for, I prayed for a minute. That should be good. God heard me. God knows my heart. Do we get too busy? I'll get to that later. I have a few things I have to do first. Do we just get bored? Right? Sitting, just praying. Starting to close our eyes and fall asleep. Are we unbelieving when we pray? Do we pray these prayers and yet in our minds and our hearts think, God's God's not going to do that? Are we consumeristic in our prayers? Are we really praying out of God's word and what he's promised? Are we just praying for things that we want and desire? Let us be a people of prayer, of true faith, pulling it out to its full tension and effect. In fervent, earnest prayer, will God not always accomplish his will? Yes, he will. But God often uses suffering to bring about his will, an increase of his word. And so that's what the church is facing. That's what the church is responding to. And so what's our response? I I deeply urge you before anything to get on your knees and pray. Pray that the gospel would go forth, that you would be bold and faithful, that Jesus would be made much of, that God is glorified above all things for God's wisdom as he most loves to give us his wisdom as a church. I pray that you would be a people of prayer in those things. If I get killed, if Nate or Chris gets arrested, may you be a people of prayer. And I'm encouraged, church. I'm encouraged that we as a church have been a church growing in our prayer life. I've been hearing stories of each of you taking time to pray and gathering together as a church to pray. Through our Sunday gatherings, we pray. Through our pre-service prayer time, we've been gathering to pray. And God has been answering many of these prayers in our children's and youth ministry, in houses and meals together, in elders' meetings, in members' meetings, in all of these things, in our evening prayer gathering, which I encourage you to come to tonight if you can. Not only praying more, but praying according to God's word, where he has revealed who he is and his will for us as his people. Church, I'm encouraged by you praying. We need to be praying. And as I've seen him answering prayer, we see a growth in the desire in each of you to be in his word, to know him more deeply, to show love and forgiveness to one another, to be faithful in your walks with Christ, to call out sin, to repent, to forgive. This is all done by prayer as the Holy Spirit works through us. I've seen his gospel faithfully proclaimed as we are praying for one another to go and share with those whom God has brought into our lives. I've seen him calling people to himself. I've seen him working in the obedience of people uh, moving forward in baptism. We just celebrated that last week. Right? People committing and locking arms in membership to serve, to encourage one another, to walk with Christ. But let's not stop here. 
Each and every day we need to rely on our God in prayer. Let's be a people of prayer as our first reaction and turn to him. We don't always know what God will do, but I know that the people who were praying for Peter were probably praying for his freedom from uh, prison, as he has done before. I'm sure they were praying for boldness as they were praying before, that God would use this to bolden them to go and share the good news of the gospel for the name of Jesus to be proclaimed. The most important thing is that God will use these things for his glory and his purpose. And so Herod boasts of his might, and the church is humbled in their weakness, and they pray to their mighty God. The powers begin to face off, one by prideful might and one by humble prayer. And what helps their prayer is knowing their God, and we see God in his infinite might save Peter from the prison. So as you continue in verse 6, we see that Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, but God in his perfect timing comes to save Peter. Herod was seeking to please the Jews, and God was going to use this to his own demise. Herod was flexing his muscles. Herod was using his power to bind and hold Peter with his guards, with his chains, with the prison. But nothing, as we know, is impossible for our mighty God. God's perfect timing intervenes. The night right before Peter was to be brought out before the people for his execution, God intervenes. And God is God not perfect in his timing in all things. And I'd like to not pass over too quickly that Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. When I can't sleep, nine times out of ten, I'm anxious thinking about all the things that are going to be happening in the next couple days. The other time, I've probably taken a nap, so I'm just really wide awake and I can't sleep. But nine times out of ten, I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm thinking about all the things that are happening that are going on. These things are keeping me up. In facing my own execution, there's no way I'd be sleeping. But Peter is. He's at peace soundly asleep. So much so that we'll see that he'll need a good strike to wake him up. How? Because his blessed Savior said that he could sleep in peace. Matthew 10, 28 said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter had a reverent fear of our mighty God. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Paul in Philippians to the Philippian church says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, even if it doesn't make any sense to the world, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And but just before that, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter wasn't afraid. Maybe in his humanness he was a little bit worried, but not enough to keep him from sleeping that night. Probably a more restful sleep than a lot of us have. 
And this is why we see Peter asleep, the apostles rejoicing to suffer for Christ, why Paul and Silas, when they're arrested later on in Acts, are singing hymns to God. It's why we can gather together and worship despite the circumstances that we face and worship our God in song and praise, singing songs like, Oh, the mighty hand that controls the sea is a hand that fights for and cares for me. And the God who thunders, the God ablaze, is the God who loves me a million ways. We can sing these knowing that they are truth from God's word of who he is and what he has done. And he has proven them time and time again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Romans 8 says. Not chains or soldiers, nor a mighty king or a jail cell. So we find Peter worshiping by sleeping. Worshiping as he rests his head in the love of Christ and the grace of who God is. The night leading to his execution. Spurgeon has a beautiful quote that Nate's used quite a lot. It says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. God is in control in all these things. And so does the gospel truly give us rest and peace in the anxiety that we face, in the things that come, the hardships in our way, the misunderstandings, the ups and downs, in our sins, in our failures, in our weaknesses, and our waiting? Does the gospel give us peace? As God's people, It should. And so where Luke minimized the detail in James' death, he maximized the detail in God's extraordinary and powerful rescue, despite Herod's efforts to keep Peter confined. So the next verses lay out God's rescue of his deliverance of Peter out of this confinement into freedom. Peter was sleeping between these soldiers, and an angel comes and strikes him on the side. It's like this holy kidney shot right to his side to wake him up. And he tells him to get up, get up quickly. And the chains fall off his hands. They just fall off. He gets up in haste. He tells him to dress himself, to put on his sandals. And and Peter listens, and he does so. And we see that Peter is in this, this daze. He's not sure really what's going on, but he's just following and obeying. He thinks it's a vision, which is fair because he's had a vision before. But the angel tells him to wrap his cloak on and follow him, and so they go out. And they begin to pass these guards, unbeknownst to them. No alarm set. They avoid the notice of the guards. They get to the gate, and the gate opens on its own. They get onto the street, and the angel leaves him, and Peter comes to his senses and realizes what has happened. His mighty God has saved him. It was real. And some may try to explain this away, that there was some kind of intricate escapist that helped Peter out. But both to the conclusion of Peter and Luke, who's writing this, this was indeed a miraculous, mighty, supernatural rescue by God. The details are sure and certain. It was a waking up, getting dressed, and walking out by the might of God and God alone. Peter says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Peter's efforts. It was God's. It was all God. God alone could do this. And God loves to work in this way. In the impossible situations that the only conclusion is that it was him who did it. 
God has rescued his people. And it's good to know that this isn't a formulaic thing. God's not always going to act in this situation the same way every single time. But in his wisdom, he will do what he wills. But it is a reminder to us that our God does act in this way. He is a miraculous freer from sin and death. It was God's will that Peter continued to be used for God's glorious purpose. Peter contributes nothing. He's in a daze, simply obedient to the grace of God's rescue through his angel. And so when Peter finally comes to realization, he immediately goes and tells the church. In verse 12, he says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. The church at this time was praying, continuing to pray, still praying for Peter to be released as it is actually happening, which is such an amazing and ironic situation. But our God works in amazing ways. And so he goes, and he knocks on the door. Their house was used as a place of gathering as a church for them to come together to pray and to worship God, to disciple one another. What a blessing to be able to use what God has given them for his church and for the kingdom growth to pray and worship. And so Peter comes and knocks on the gateway, surely seeking to be discreet because he's just escaped out of prison. Surely people will be looking for him. He doesn't want to cause too much of a commotion. But he knocks on the gate, wants to quickly get in, and a servant girl named Rhoda comes and answers. And she recognizes Peter's voice. He doesn't even see him. And in her joy, she doesn't let Peter in. She runs back in to go and tell the others of what God has done. But her reaction is amazing. I'm sure for Peter it was a little frightening as he's left out on the street, but nonetheless, amazing for her to react in such joy of what God has done that she wants to go and tell the rest of the church immediately. I pray that we have a joy like this when we see God answering prayer, when we see God moving and working in our church, in our city, and in the world. Let us be a people of joy. However, the church praying doesn't receive the news quite as joyfully. They're doubtful. They claim that Rhoda is out of her mind. They're in disbelief and calling it crazy. There's no way God has worked this fast. There's no way God has answered this prayer this quickly. They may have been praying for Peter, but I wonder if they really expected God to do something. Right? James was killed. Would Peter also be? Although we may bath, bash the church for being so unbelieving, is this not us at most times? When we're praying, when we're praying for God to move and to work in ways, we kind of pray with a bit of doubt. I don't know if God's going to really do that. I know I'm guilty of this. We excuse away the possibility. We push things aside. And when we even hear things, we're like, I don't know. I don't know if that's really what's happening. I don't know if God is really going to do that. They continue to make excuses and push it away. It's, it's his angel, they say. This could be in reference to a spiritual visitor, the Greek word angel, um, one that is serving Peter, sent by God, or an angel that took on, thought to be the appearance like Peter. It could be understood as a, just a human messenger on Peter's behalf, maybe coming to bring the message that Peter is gone. Regardless of the true interpretation of what they mean by saying that, what we see is they were doubtful that Peter was really rescued. 
When we pray, do we trust that God will act? When God does act, do we respond with criticism or do we respond with joy? Do we really believe, like in Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think? I'm sure they didn't expect God to do what he did in such an amazing and unexpected way. But Rhoda insisted that it was, in fact, Peter freed from the prison, delivered by God. And so they finally go, maybe wanting to prove Rhoda wrong, and they find Peter there, standing at the gate. And they were in amazement. The joy sets in. The defoundment sets in. And Peter has to settle them down and quiet them down. I'm sure there was some loud gasps and screams that Peter was there. He wanted to tell them what God had done. He wanted to make sure that they knew that this was not on his own doing, but on God's mighty work. Needing to be quick and discreet as not to get caught, he makes known what God has done. And Peter shares of what God has done, giving glory and honor and recognition and praise to him. It could have been even a bit of a rebuke to them for their doubt, but also an encouragement as Peter recounts once again how it was God that stopped the guards and the gates no might could outmight God. And so he tells them to then go and share that with the rest of the church, to go to James and the Jerusalem church and share with the brothers and sisters there of what God is continuing to do. And we'll begin to see the outpouring of this next week as God continues to act and as his word continues to increase. But I want to lastly just encourage us, when we see the mighty works of God, let us be encouraged to share it with others, with our church. That's why we gather, is to encourage and exhort one another in what Christ is doing, what God has done in our lives. It also means we should share the hardships, because when we see God working in those things, we can praise him as he answers our prayers. And let us go and share of the greatest news which is the gospel of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, salvation found in him, eternal life with God forever. And so Peter shares and Peter leaves, and he goes to continue to preach and teach that God is mighty to save in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Our passage ends with irony. As we see Herod seeming mighty at the beginning, we see his might continue to diminish in the might of God. In his anger, and as far as his custom, outpowered, he turns to destroy his own power. There's no little disturbance as the soldiers try to figure out what happened last night. Where did Peter go? How did he get past everyone? How did the gate swing open? How did he get out of these chains? And Herod turns on his own and has the soldiers killed, as is part of the custom, if a prisoner escapes, those who are watching after them deserve and receive the punishment that the prisoner was to get. And we see the might of God working, that his word will continue to increase. And so what, you might ask, what does all this have to do with us? Well, we see that the church responds to hopelessness by praying together to their almighty God. If you remember my story at the beginning as I was working for Youth for Christ, I was faced with a $7,000 power against me. 
I remember that night praying, wondering if I should just go home. It'd be easier. It'd be more comfortable. I could just find a job at McDonald's or somewhere else. Just work a bit to pay for school. But I prayed, and I, I felt God telling me, and as I looked in his word to just say, trust me, I will provide. And at the end of that summer, I ended up raising the 7,000 and even more so. God provided and provided abundantly. And maybe he wouldn't have, and yet he still would have been faithful. He still would have been glorified. He still would have provided in other ways. But we can turn to him and we can pray and we can know that he has given us all that we need in Christ Jesus. God gives us hope in Jesus. Whatever hopeless situation is not too mighty for our mighty God. As Christians, we may feel we're facing a powerful world, powerful people, powerful sin, and the power struggle is tough, but it has been won already in Jesus. Do we believe that today? Luke links powerful intercession with prayer to the increase of God's word, the amazing truth of this gospel of Jesus. Let us be a church that is saturated in prayer, regardless of what we may face in the years to come. Let us be a people who are resting in our almighty God. Let us be a church saturated in prayer. Prayer gathering together, interceding for one another to our mighty God who saves. One last quote by Spurgeon says, I would fain... And I urge my dear brethren to attach as much importance to prayer as the early church did. You cannot think too much of it. Continue to pray. And remember the hope that is set before us in Christ. Romans 8, 37 to 39 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So let us not be a people of worldly fear, but of God-given hope in Jesus our Lord. Let us come to him in prayer. Let us pray.